Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, session 454. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 454 you're listening to. My guest today is the return of Jeff Powell, vinyl mastering engineer based out of Memphis, Tennessee, who's worked with Jackson Brown, Allison Krauss, and Robert Plant, Bob Dylan, Randy Newman, Dusty Springfield, Afghan Wigs, T-Bone Burnett. Yep, just on and on and on. He's worked on a lot of projects for a lot of great people. So very much looking forward to having him back on the show. He originally appeared on episode 15 in 2015. Yeah, that was quite some time ago. I'll include a link in the show notes so you can reference that if you want. But a lot's changed for Jeff, and we're going to talk all about that. A lot of great, great changes that pertain to vinyl and lacquer cutting. And we're going to talk really extensively about a lot of that business and a lot of that, uh, the mechanics of that. So I'm super excited for you to hear it. I was excited to have the interview with Jeff and I'm really glad that he's back. So Jeff Powell coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. I'm going to revisit the backup thing. Okay, look, most of you are working in digital environments In fact, I would be willing to bet 99% of you are. Those of you that are working on tape, you can ignore this or or you can absorb this however you want to do it. Long story short, at the end of the day, being that I'm revisiting this, those of you who have listened for a long time, you know that at the end of this rant, I'm going to tell you, you absolutely have to have a strategy for backing your stuff up. You've got to know where it's at. You've got to be able to access it. You've got to have multiple copies of it. If you've got one copy of it, you don't, you don't have it because we all know drives fail. It's inevitable. And you know, the jury's out on longevity of the SSDs versus hard disk drives. So at the end of the day, it's quite simple. Just make sure that you are backing up in three different locations and how you're doing that. You know, that's up to you. If you want to use tape drives, if you want to use hard drives, raid systems uh single drives however you do it if you got three copies you've got a much better chance of getting access to your data now are are we talking about your data or are we talking about your client's data being that this is working class audio let's assume we're talking about your client's data what are you going to do in 10 years when one of those clients out of nowhere get some kind of opportunity for licensing, whether it's in a game or a movie or whatever it is, they're going to come back and say, Hey, you got that file, right? If you could say yes, that's a great situation to be in. We can have a separate rant about whether it's your responsibility to keep that stuff or not. I keep everything. I never know when those, those questions are going to pop up. Maybe ask ourselves this. Uh, I think you all have been seeing the news and maybe you're aware that there's been some natural disasters going on in the last several years that kind of seem unprecedented. Fires, floods, uh, earthquakes, excessive heat. You know, let's talk about uh, Lahaina in, in Maui. Let's say you had a studio in Lahaina 
and let's say you had everything in that studio, clearly that would not have worked, right? Because your studio would have burned and that, that's it, your stuff's gone. But what if you had a cloud backup of that? Okay, that's good, you're covered. But let's say your cloud service gets some malware attack and you might say, well, come on, Matt, the odds of the fire and a malware attack happening or a ransomware attack happening are pretty low. Maybe so, but what if that happened? What would you do? That's when your third copy comes in handy. What if you had even a basic set of hard drives or let's, let's go a little advanced. Let's say you had an extra NAS, uh, Synology NAS, my favorite, parked at somebody's house on the mainland. There your odds go up even more that you're gonna maintain your data. Be thinking about that. Be thinking of these disasters because you just don't know when these disasters are gonna strike. You know, there could be a number of things that happen that you never in your wildest dreams thought would occur, right? What about a train derailment in Ohio where they've got to evacuate people for miles around or floods or fires, or I think that there's a nuclear facility in uh, Port Clinton, Ohio. Let's say they have a nuclear meltdown there, right? Or, you know, for those of you that remember the Three Mile Island thing, you just don't know. So increase your odds have that data sitting in multiple spots. Now, I'll tell you, this uh, the current state of where I'm going after doing some evaluating over the weekend about my strategy, and that's the thing. You've always got to be evaluating how what your strategy is. Don't just set it and forget it and think, oh, we're good. Shit changes, people. Technologies change. Threats change. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to have a Synology NAS over on the East Coast, I'm gonna have one here on the West Coast. We're gonna have a Dropbox account and we might even have a fourth scenario uh, in place. I don't know in what form, if it's gonna be a tape backup scenario or not, or another NAS sitting in another state or in another country. Point is you will increase your odds of getting your data back if you've got it spread around in friendly areas, right? And that could be as simple as uh, a two bay mirrored hard drive NAS thing sitting on somebody's network synced to Dropbox in another state. Could be as simple as that. And who that person is, that's up to you. You know who to trust. You know who can uh, handle the technical side of it. If you called them and said, hey, do you, do you mind? There's trouble on, on my device at your place. Can you remedy this? So that's what I think of when I'm trying to get control of the data. The other thing too is to keep track of it. It's very simple. Just put make a spreadsheet. It doesn't have to get complicated. Make sure you know the name of the file, where it's located. And here's an added tip. If you're using Dropbox or some other cloud storage thing, there's a million of them. Make sure you include a link so that you don't have to go searching through uh, files to find this thing. You could just click on the link and go there. The other thing too, is if you are in possession of an army of hard drives, Here's my suggestion. Get yourself sat down at a computer, install this thing called NeoFinder. Start going through those hard drives, plugging them in one at a time and turn NeoFinder on. It will scan and create a database of everything that's on that drive. When it's done, it'll eject the drive. You plug in the next drive, scan the next one. And then by the end of it, you've got a database, everything on however many hard drives you're in possession of. That's another way that you can find uh, data that you're looking for. 
lots of stuff to take in there. And I know that I've talked about this uh, time and time again. It's very important. It's one of the responsibilities that comes with being an audio professional in the 21st century, maintaining the data and knowing where it is. The more organized you can be with it, the better off you're going to be with your clients and the better you're going to look with your clients. Um, if you have any strategies you want to share with me, Matt at workingclassaudio.com is the email address. Send them over. If you want to, you know, throw any new ideas my way, I'm always looking for new ideas when it comes to this topic. It's one of my favorite topics. So that's it. Let's stay backing up. Always be reevaluating those strategies and just stay on top of it, people, because you just never know what's going to hit you. That's my rant. Thanks for listening. Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, they've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know if you don't know them is that Michael and Eben are two of the nicest people on the planet. Easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might have met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might have heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I have used their 108 mic pre's to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and employ a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com. I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty, pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You could talk with me about it. As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom very simply. Just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link, book me in for an hour on a Zoom call, and we will discuss your particular situation, and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired, and figure out what is the best path forward for you. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button, and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we can sit down and chat, coffees in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. Let's get to it. Jeff Powell here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. 
Jeff, welcome back to the podcast. It's great to be here. Nice to see you again, Matt. Eight years ago, you came on the show on episode 15, and here we are a gazillion episodes later, episode 454, and you're back. So <laughs> I guess a few things may have occurred between now and then. Um, yeah. Let's start with current things. What's going on right now? In case like the audience hasn't heard 15, but I'll put a link in the show notes to episode 15. Tell everybody what you're up to now with regards to vinyl and where you're located just so we can get caught up there. Well, if it was 2015 when we last talked, I had probably just moved into Sam Phillips' recording service. I was originally based out of Arden and working on the Stacks lathe, and I was still doing sessions and stuff quite frequently, recording sessions. Then I bought my own lathe and moved over to Sam Phillips in 2015. I think that must have been around when we talked on episode 15. I built a room in what was the control room of Studio B at Sam Phillips Recording Service. It's actually on the same street as Ardent down the road. It's on Madison Avenue in Memphis, Tennessee. Sam Phillips Recording Service was opened in arguably 1959 or 1960, depending who you ask. But this is the place that Sam Phillips built after he left Memphis Recording Service, which most people refer to as Sun Studios. And he wanted to build his dream studio. So this was a muffler shop, I believe, before he got his hands on it. And he designed the whole thing, the acoustics and everything by himself. So it's really a wonderful place and not a whole lot's changed. So it's a totally old school vibe when you walk in here, still to this day. In all these 63 years, it's never stopped being a recording studio. So that's where I'm based out of. But you're, you're in the business 100% now, if I'm correct, of basically doing cutting on a lathe. Is that accurate? Yes. I don't ever really want to say the words I'm retired from recording because I'm sure I'll do it again. But yeah, I, I don't actively take on sessions anymore. And they're happening all the time in Studio A, which is... I'm just down the hall from that. But bleed is never a problem, so I don't interfere with their work. They don't interfere with mine, so it's really a cool situation. It's a great environment to be around because there's still bands coming in and out, you know, and my room sometimes becomes a little haven for people to sneak away from their session and get away from everything for a minute <laughs> if they need to. But, yeah, it's, it's a very active studio, so it stays busy all the time. One thing I want to demystify just for clarity's sake, for those that either A, get it wrong, or B, just don't know, I think people often incorrectly refer to it as cutting vinyl, but you're not actually cutting vinyl. You're cutting lacquer. Is that correct? Correct. It's a different material. So the thing about cutting lacquers is that when I cut a lacquer on the lathe and then play it back just in spots before I actually make a master cut. If there's places where I think there might be a trouble spot, basically due to the limitations of vinyl, things like sibilance, plosives, and things like that, that tend to, any excessive high frequency information can tend to splat and distort on vinyl records, especially the closer you get to the inner grooves. So sometimes if there's a trouble spot, I'll do a little test cut on a scrap and play it back. And when you play it back, right off the vinyl after you've cut it, it sounds unbelievable, unbelievably great, but you're destroying it every time you play it. So when I do a master cut, for instance, 
I can't sit down and go, okay, that all seemed good. Now let me play it back and see if everything's all right. You can't do that. You can't play it or you'll destroy the high end for the most part. So you have to look at it under the microscope, make sure you don't see any physical defects and you put it in a crush proof box and send it off to be plated. I always try to get it within 24 hours to arrive at the plating facility, especially in the South in the summertime. I shudder to think of my lacquers sitting in a hot truck melting somewhere. So Memphis is the hub of FedEx. So almost every day after I cut, I'm running into FedEx at the last minute, personally handing over the box to the people there. So I avoid that kind of thing. The hub is here and it goes out and is delivered to the plating facility by the next morning. So we're keeping our chances as good as we can that it's not going to melt. And a lacquer in its core, there's is there aluminum in there? Yeah, there's aluminum core and then nitrocellulose is the compound. And I've been told it's kind of the same chemical makeup as fingernail polish. Now, I'm not a chemist, so I don't know exactly that to be true, but it's I know that it's very soft. And a manufactured record is plastic PVC, so that's very hard and is meant to be played multiple, multiple times. Very different chemical very makeups. Different. And nitrocellulose is highly flammable, is it not? Yes, it is. It's never happened to me, but I've heard stories back in the days, you know, when everybody smoked everywhere all the time. Dudes flicking their ashes in the trash can where you, when we cut a record, it sucks up into a little tube and collects in a jar. We call it chip. The English call it swarf, which I think is a little bit cooler. But you got to empty that jar out, you know, so sometimes they would just throw it in the trash cans. But that was an early lesson they told me not to do to make sure you get rid of it right away. And like eight-year-olds, we would get it, a chunk of it, and take it to the parking lot, course, and light it on fire. So, <laughs> poof. <laughs> but yeah, you hear stories of dudes flicking their at their cigarettes in the trash can and the whole thing just because it's super flammable. I mean, it goes up instantaneously. It's it's pretty crazy. Wow. And that would be attributed to there was a fire many years ago, right? At a facility that manufactured those lacquer discs, correct? Yeah. That was Apollo Transco. It was on the same building, two different brands of blank lacquers. And it was right before the pandemic kicked in. And yeah, the plant burned to the ground. It's in Banning, California. And I've heard different rumors, but I've heard some of the runoff went into a creek nearby, which was really bad. And so the EPA was, they couldn't just turn around and rebuild. But it has not been rebuilt. So as we speak today, there's one company in the world that manufactures blank lacquers, and that's MDC, and they come from Japan. And they are enjoying a boom time for their product. Yeah, you know, at first it was everybody was freaking out. This is it. This is going to destroy the industry or who can get them. I fortunately had been using MDCs for two or three years before the fire. So I already had a pretty good in. I preferred them because to me they were higher quality and more consistent than a lot of the Apollo's Transco's. Starting off, it was really tough to get them. You had to know somebody and then send a money order to England. And they tell you who to ship it to in the States. Then you pay shipping. from. It was pretty crazy. But then a company who was one of the main plating facilities, one of my favorites, was a company called Nipro Optics. And they're based out of Irvine, California. 
they took over distributorship for MDC. Again, this is all before, before the fire. So I had a good relationship with them and I was getting my allotment every month and it never stopped. They were super cool with me. You know, they had to understandably be fair to everybody as best they could. Cause you know, the major labels were calling my house saying, we're going to buy all of them <laughs> this month or whatever. And you'll get the lacquers from us. And what would the price be? And how many can you get your hands on or recovered? You know, so we all just kind of had to dance around it and play it by ear. It never was a problem. I think there might've been one month when I ran out and didn't have enough. And I called one of my cutter buddies and said, can you sell me a box? Do you got any extra? And he happened to be in a good spot to do it. And then I helped him back down the road a little bit. So it all worked out. Yeah, and they're they're expensive. Oh yeah, I think they're about off the top of my head. I want to say eleven hundred and fifty bucks or something a box, and that's about they come in boxes of twenty five. Yeah. So by the time you ship them to Memphis and get them here, it's I always round up a little bit and just say basically they're like they're about sixty bucks a piece. Wow, it's kind of like the early days of the blank CD when I worked in uh, yeah. pro audio yeah. retail, where people would come in and go give me a box of 10 blank CDs. And it's like, okay, that'll be $150. Right, right. Yeah, again, these, these are things that when I was a young cutter, I might have stressed out about because, gosh, you know, I'm spending 50 grand a year on blank lacquers now. If you would have told me starting off, you're going to need to budget $50,000 a year for blank lacquers. I'm like, what? what are you talking about? I have to rob a bank? It's all just part of the business plan now and the way it flows. And you can't just hoard them and buy a bunch of them. You can't let them sit around for a year. They start to get hard and they're not as optimal to cut on. That's crazy. So you got to keep them fresh. Yeah, you got to keep the line moving. Another thing is, oddly enough, I can't get my shipment in two days before I start using them either. They come in and you just kind of got to keep the line moving. Sometimes because they're making more of them, from my understanding, at MDC, they've upped their production because they're supplying for the whole world. They won't let them dry or cure, as we call it, quite long enough. So you might get some and they're what we call, they're still green. They're a little too fresh and they're not dry. So every box I get, I try to open it at least two to three weeks before I'm going to need to get in there and start using them and just let them acclimate to the... It's air-conditioned here, obviously. But let them acclimate to the temperature and the humidity and all that stuff of this studio. So, yeah, we cure them. It's funny because when I give tours of Sam Phillips' studio to people who want to come through, and, and we're not open for tours, but people want to come and see it all the time. And they're like, what are those? Like, those are my lacquers hanging out, drying. And you might go into another room. What are those? That's another box of my lacquers hanging out, curing. So... <laughs> There's two places I basically do it up on the third floor and just keep them up there. And then I move them down into my room. You want to probably be in there a couple of days before you start using them. And for me, most of the time that works. Keeps them going. The other thing though is with MDC, if you get one, you don't know until you put it on your platter and spin it up and turn the vacuum on, which kind of sucks it down onto the platter. But if it's not completely flat, or it has a, what I would call a ditch, a line down the middle. You can see it ripple as every time it goes around. You can't use it. You can if you're a cheapskate or something and don't want to cut the best quality, but 
it can affect the audio. And then another thing that happens if they're not quite dry, they're what we call a halo around the very outer edge. A regular 12-inch record that we cut and send off to be manufacturers cut on a 14-inch lacquer. So we have two inches on the outside where we can cut silent grooves. We can do a little test of the audio. Again, if you have a trouble spot, you can cut a little piece of the audio there, and then we can play it back against the master, what you're cutting from, and make sure it all sounds really good. And so there's always a little ring on the outside of that area, that outer two inches that you can kind of play with. So before you actually cut the record starting right at the 12-inch line. It sounds like a very demanding part of the record production process because, I mean, everything you just laid out to me about the nuance of the lacquers from the buying to the shipping to the product when it arrives and how you work it into the workflow but also just all the equipment involved. And I think people hearing this will probably finally go, oh, that's why that shit costs so much. Well, funny you should ask, because as we sit here today, yesterday, I had this Sister Rosetta Tharp record I was doing, I'm really excited about. But the sides were really long, and I'd been going back and forth with the A&R guy from the production manager from the label. And whether to lose a song, what could we do to shorten it, shorten the applause on some of the things, all these little things that gain you seconds of time, but allows me to make a little better cut. We finally got all that figured out. It was a couple of days of back and forth. And I went and dropped the cutter head to do the test cut on the outside band. And I looked over at my meters and they were going crazy. So I bailed and popped up the cutter head, looked at it on the microscope and knew pretty much for sure what had just happened. I blew my cutter head yesterday. <gasps> uh, so that's the second, only the second time in 15 years I've been cutting vinyl that that's happened. And it was for no particular reason, uh, as far as I know. I immediately shut it down and called my guru, Chris Muth, who maintains my lathe. And I took some pictures of the blown up groove. I think I'm going to make a t-shirt out of it. It looks really cool, but it's um, <laughs> all said and done. I'm going to have to send it off probably to this guy in Italy to rewind the coils and Chris will need to fly down to come put it back on and then make some adjustments and get it going. And whether I need a replacement head from him, he's wonderful and always jumps to just, he just kind of dropped everything yesterday and said, send it to me now. So I got it FedEx to him and he had it by eight 30 this morning and said, yeah, your left side's gone. So I've got a replacement for you. We'll talk later. I said, so after I get off this, interview with you, I'm going to find out what the damage would be. But all said and done, I'm just making a rough estimate with trips back and forth and sending it overseas to be fixed. That's like a probably $13,000 deal. Oh my gosh. Yeah. It's kind of like blowing your transmission in your car or something. There's no cheap way around it. The good news is it'll sound like a million bucks when I get it back. So, <laughs> but yeah, no fun. It was really no fault. It could have been a cracked solder joint. Could Nothing anybody did. It's just a machine, you know, yeah. and machines fail sometimes. And that will bring business to a halt, right? Yeah. Again, you know, I'm going to talk to Mr. Muth when we get off the line here, but I mean, he's just wonderful. He's saved my bacon so many times. When this happened during the, during the pandemic, I won blue and he drove here from New York City. This is when we were all couldn't be in the same room, masking up and all that. It was hardcore times. And he drove down here from New York to to put the head on and align it and get it all mended out. And 
that's the kind of thing you never forget. You know, he's a good friend. Yeah. I mean, that kind of help is invaluable, but I'm just absolutely stunned by some of the the stuff that you talked about, just about like bringing in the lacquers and having to age them, so to speak, in a short period of time to make sure that they're right. And once a lacquer is cut, and here's another thing too, is that, and, and please correct me if I'm 100% wrong here, from my understanding, if you have two sides to a record, you actually need two lacquers, right? Each side is one lacquer, correct. And there's really only one good side to a lacquer. I do know some folks who, if they blow it on one side, they'll flip it and cut it on the other side. But every lacquer has got a little number scribed into it right near the center hole. And that's the side you don't cut on. You can cut on it, but they only guarantee the other side. The other side is supposed to be, and then I don't even know what I'm saying by guarantee, because if it's not flat, like I was talking about a while ago, or you see one little speck in it in the middle that you can see even with the naked eye, let alone with the microscope, you can't risk hitting that. So you throw it out, you're out and they don't take refunds. They don't replace it. You just, you've got a $60 Frisbee there. Jeez. <laughs> oh, you know, sometimes if anomaly is on the outside, you can maybe use it for a 10 inch. You can still cut a, a seven inch single record on it later. So I do have a box we save those with. We always have to put a 14-inch lacquer in the bottom of every box we ship, but most of the time, the plating guys will send us boxes of scraps of that, but that's the first thing that goes in the box just to protect the bottom. So it's just like, well, I got a brand new $60 spacer. Usually the things that you put on the bottom are just scratched up or pre-used, and you just got to clean them up and put them in the bottom. Unbelievable. And then that obviously goes to the plating facility where the, I guess it's called the mother. They make the mother. They make the father first, which is they make a negative of the lacquer, and that's the father. And then from the father, they make a negative of that, and that's the mother. And this is something, you know, I always tell people to, on my submission form, I ask if you want two-step or three-step plating. And that's basically what we're talking about there. If you want to do three-step plating, they'll take that father, they'll make multiple mothers off of it. So in turn, a mother, you make a negative of that, and that's a stamper. And that's what they send to the plants to crush out your records. So a mother can make so many stampers through its life and it gives out. And then if you did three-step plating, so you need a repress two years later. And this is when you were making thousands of records too. So most independents make somewhere between 1,000 and 2,000 maybe. Some are just 500 even. But you're not going to need to do three-step plating for that. But it just keeps them from having to come all the way back to me two years later and say, can you recut that lacquer? The mother's worn out, the stampers are worn out, we need a recut, so we need to start all over again. And, you know, uh, the fellow who taught me and trained me initially, my mentor, Larry Nix, who was the cutter over at Stax Records back in the day, that's who brought me up. But he explained to me pretty early on, like, whenever they got a job back in the day, when vinyl was it, if you got a major label record in, you didn't just cut one set of lacquers. You cut one for the plant in Miami. You cut one for the plant in Detroit. You cut one for the plant in LA. You cut four, five, six sets of the exact same lacquers and sent them out to all the plants because shipping is so expensive. If you look at some of the matrix numbers, I've heard some of the, you know, you see some of the discussions on Discogs and some of these forums. Like, dude, the Detroit pressing sounds way better than the Miami pressing for this whatever record they're talking about. You can get all the way into that because 
it was a different set of lacquers. Somebody else, a different set of plating, different pressing. Some of them really, there really was a difference. Huh. It's like train spotting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's a fascinating, and that doesn't happen too much anymore. I do have some companies that some of the bigger ones I cut for, they'll have me cut a set of lacquers for Europe, send it to a plant over there, and they'll have me cut a set of lacquers for North America and send it to a diff- whole different place over here. So sometimes I get doubles like that, but it's not the norm. And then there's records that I've cut. Two of my favorite jobs that I've gotten over the years is I cut the Creedence Clearwater Revival Chronicles, which is their greatest hits. And that's a double album. I think I've cut that four or five times over the years just because that's their number one seller and they sell out. So they just run out. The mothers run out. The stampers run out. And we got to do it again. Same with their second biggest seller at Concord is, from what I understand, is the Vince Guaraldi trio, Charlie Brown Christmas. Oh, yeah, and that's naturally. that's always a great day to get to cut that record. I mean, you can't have a bad day cutting Charlie Brown Christmas, man. That, I know that's just some super pleasant music. To it listen really to. is. I, I can hear it in my head as you as you're talking about it. I might need to go listen to that today when we're done, since I blew my cutter <laughs> yesterday. I think you need some Charlie Brown vibes. <laughs> now, when you're cutting, I know you work in an, in a building; it's air conditioned, but. Regionally speaking, Memphis can be a humid place. Yes. Uh, would it be challenging for a cutter, say, in a dry environment like in New Mexico or Arizona? Is it possible in those environments for the challenges to be different? And also, does the possibility exist for static electricity to build up on the cutter head on the lacquer? Yeah, all those things. I do keep track of the humidity in my room and I do have a, believe it or not, I have to use a humidifier sometimes. It's really odd the way it works and I can't explain because it, it doesn't make sense. Usually when you turn an air conditioner on, it adds humidity to the room. The air conditioning in my room is controlled by the thermostat in Studio A control room. So if there's a big session going on there and they've got a bunch of people and they may have it turned down a little more than normal, I literally have to wear a, a jacket in my room because <laughs> it's so cold. But it tends to dry the air out, believe it or not, a little bit. Hmm. So I have to, I just look at my meter and keep it within a range. And I'll turn on the humidifier for a little while. Certainly not blowing at the lathe or blowing right on something. But it does make a difference. I mean, it's a scientific process. So everything you can replicate and keep track of matters in the end of getting a great cut. It would seem to be overkill. But it, but at the same time, it would seem like it would be a good idea to have almost like clean room type specs that one would have in a, a manufacturing facility for things that are going into space or hard drives or computer chips. Is a clean room just not really needed in this case? Well, there's been talk of that. But in the normal process of when you're making a, a record and I'm cutting the lacquers and I'm sending it to the plating facility, one of the first things they do is they spray off the disc with distilled water. It's usually on a turning type of mechanism, but they spray it off and clean it before they apply the silver to it. That's the first process of plating, as I understand it. And so if there's a little dust from the box, we try to minimize it. But if there's a little box dust, it's not that big of a deal because it's going to be cleaned off and put in the bath, basically, for the plating process. For the project I'm doing with T-Bone Burnett, the basic concept when he came to me was... He wanted to figure a way to capture that great sound of how it sounds when you play a lacquer back right after you cut it. But knowing that it destroys it or deteriorates every time you play it, 
he wanted to figure a way they came up with a coating that could coat the lacquer, this very, very thin, so many atoms thick, that could coat the fresh cut lacquer and that we could play it a thousand times and it sounds just like it just came off the lacquer. Now, so imagine if that's dirty or has dust all over and it isn't cleaned off properly without touching the surface with anything at all, of course, dust could get coated in there and then you would have possible ticks and pops if you got a big piece of dust in one of the grooves. So we have been talking about the, the lab where it happens is basically a, a clean room where the coating happens, but we're going to great lengths. We've designed several different types of shipping containers to minimize that completely. So, and we're, we're still continuing to do that to this day. It's one of the things we're working on. But I don't wow. know. I don't know if you read the big thing that we did last year was we worked on this in secrecy for when I got involved. It was almost three years. But the other part of his idea was he recorded Bob Dylan singing Blowing in the Wind with T Bone's band. So a brand new recording of Bob Dylan singing the Blow in the Wind. I cut the lacquers. We had them coated. We tested them and played them a thousand times until we got that perfected. And we would capture it too. The guy with the job doing that, I don't envy, you know, to have to play something a thousand times it could be pretty maddening no matter who it was. But he also captured it recording-wise. So we could go back and reference what did play number 10 sound like, what did number 50 sound like, on and on, up to a thousand. And it turns out they kind of became self-cleaning almost. The thousandth <laughs> play sounded just as good as play five to 10 or whatever, maybe arguably better. And then they wow. took it as uh, we got Bob to sign the back of it the back of the lacquer and we did several of them and then t-bone picked out the one that sounded the best to him the others were destroyed and they auctioned this one of one at christie's auction house last july 7th a year ago july 7th and it sold for 1.8 million dollars oh so oh, wow. that was a blast to be a part of that project and it's an ongoing thing there's going to be more I don't really know why because I'm not involved in those decisions, but we're still constantly trying to improve since it's been a year. How do these hold up a year later? Is the coating still good? You know, and everything's going great so far, but we're just, we're constantly trying to improve the process and how we do it, how we ship them. Once the recording had Bob Dylan's voice on it and the lacquers, they couldn't leave human hands. We couldn't just pop them in the box and send them FedEx to the lab or back and forth to the testing facility and all that. So they were hand carried every step of the way. It was it was, it was wow. a cool, fun, fun project, and the recording was amazing. Mike Persanti, I should mention him too. He was the engineer, and he worked nothing short of a miracle. It sounded amazing, incredible. Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app 
And I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it, because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Samply, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Samply.app or Samply.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Samply.app and use that code WCA20, and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Samply.app. Check it out. The business of doing this, if somebody hearing this says, wow, that sounds amazing. I want to do that. Like, what do people really need to consider before they go and go on eBay and buy some old lathe that they think is going to do this? Like, it's a serious thing. This is like, I always compare stuff like this to a boat. You can't just buy a boat and let it sit in the water. You have to, you have to take care of it. There's a lot of maintenance involved. By the way, I don't own a boat. We'll never own a boat. And I hate <laughs> being on boats. But it's a high maintenance thing. Almost like an analog tape machine is a, is a fairly high maintenance thing. You can't just set it and forget it. This sounds like next level high maintenance. Yeah, it is. And I think one of the things that's different about me, and maybe to my detriment, maybe not, but in my past life as a recording engineer and producer, I came up at Ardent Studios and the studios I worked with when I traveled around was as an independent. The most of them were big commercial studios and they always had a tech department. So I never developed those skills as a do-it-yourself or fixer-upper myself. I, I didn't need to because if something was broke, as simple as a mic wire, you take it back to the shop and they fix it. So in that sense, I think some of my colleagues in the vinyl cutting business are do-it-yourselfers and they're very knowledgeable about electronics and mechanics of the machine and stuff. And I think that's half the fun for some of these guys and gals. They like tinkering around with it and playing it. But my strategy right off the bat was I'm going to get the best in the world to take care of my lathe and nobody else is going to lay a finger on it. And that's the way I've remained. And that's why Chris Muth is the guy who is my tech. But that's why he also took a call with me at four o'clock in the afternoon yesterday going, here's some pictures of what just happened. And he tells me to box it up and send it to him. So I, he was on his stoop at 8.30 this morning, thanks FedEx, <laughs> and gave me the bad news before I came in here to do this interview. <laughs> but it's, it's a very, that's all to say that he's just, God, he's so busy, you know, he's so busy. But for him to just kind of go, send it to me, here's what we're going to do. I can work it on on the weekend and we can make a plan and figure out how to get you back up and running again as quick as possible. So it's not, this is not something people want to dabble in. This is something that if you're going to do this, do it right because it's involved and it requires a level of commitment. Yeah. And I'd say there's probably two levels. 
There are hobbyists, but they tend to find an old Presto lathe or something like that, or a Reco cut, like they used back in the old school, that they're not meant to produce manufacturable master lacquers, but they cut one-offs and do field recordings with them and fun stuff like that. And that's, you know, they got to know what they're doing as well, but it's just not the same kind of machine as having a Scully or a Neumann lathe. Yeah, there's a lot to it. I'm sure I'm not the first nor the last to bring this up as a possibility, but you'd think with technology-wise, what we have available to us in manufacturing these days, is it not ever been possible to cut a lacquer with a laser and have it just not be so cost prohibitive? Well, there was a company, I think they were calling themselves HD Vinyl, and have you heard any, anything about that over the years? I mean, it's been I've around. I've heard the for, term HD vinyl, yeah. Yeah, so they were starting to get into to cut the stampers with a laser type of thing. The thing of it is, is people came back to this format. To me, people came back to this format because of the uniqueness of it, not just sonically, but the tactileness of pulling a record out of its sleeve, cleaning it, hopefully <laughs> putting it on your disc, <laughs> dropping the needle and sitting back and listening. And it requires an investment from the listeners. Most people who listen to records will sit in front of their stereo and listen to the side of a record 20 minutes or so at a time, hopefully 20 minutes or less, and even flip the other side and play it too. It's an experience. And, you know, in this day and age where nobody seems to be able to pay attention to anything for, you know, this attention spans are so short. There's such a competitiveness for your attention, whether it's TV ads or gaming or you've got your earbuds on and you can just kind of skip around a different playlist, whatever you want. Vinyl's a whole nother world, plus the the going to the store to buy it or go flipping through the bins to see what cool used record came in today that you've been wanting to hear. It's the collectors, they have conventions and record swaps and things like that. It's this whole nother culture. And I'm still amazed that it's as big as it is. But one of the reasons they sound and they are what they are, imperfections and all, is what people seem to like about it. The mm. HD Vinyl Company, I think they finally admitted failure or they pulled the plug or at least halted what they were doing. They've worked on it for several years. And at one of the making vinyl conventions in Detroit, I remember one of the guys got up and spoke and a lot of the plating facilities and pressing plants were asking him questions. He got grilled pretty hard, but he hadn't made a record yet. That was a biggie. How much were these stampers going to cost? And when he told them, they just, there was like a group groan in the whole hall. They're like, well, nobody's going <laughs> to. Maybe McCartney would pay for that or something. It would be such a high cost thing to manufacture. So, again, with all the imperfections, I mean, they try to improve those things that we're doing to make the best of what this can be, but some of the limitations of the format are the very things that people like. I always laugh at, again, back in my former life as an engineer, you've probably dealt with this. How many times when you're mixing is somebody in the band goes, hey man, can you put a sample of like record pops in in the beginning so it sounds like you're dropping the needle on a record? And mm -hmm. that's, we used to add that shit in. And now if the, your record comes back from the plant sounding like that, that's a recut, man. Nobody would accept that as high quality enough. So you don't want crackles and pops, but yet that's what it's identified at. And 
when you're talking about old records that you old singles you find in the band or something you put it on and it's you clean it as best you can but it doesn't seem to bother people that it's not perfectly clean at least in those instances yeah well i could say that i have a turntable that I had it here in my studio and I ended up moving out to the living room because I wanted my kids and my wife to feel like they could get at it too, that it wasn't this exclusive thing for me. And it's been great. We pop on a record at dinner time and we just let it run. I just put it on repeat and we just hit that same side right. a few times. It's a different experience for sure. But as far as your time as, as a tracking engineer, mixing engineer, or whatever duties you had in studios prior to this thing, do you feel like economically you're at a better place, a more consistent business now than you were in studios? Oh, yeah. I mean, I was fortunate enough in my recording career that I was most of the time busy and had something coming up next. But there were times, I think every engineer, great and small, has the moments of like, you work your ass off and then you look up and you go, holy crap, I don't, there's, I don't have anything scheduled for next month. Oh my God, I'm going to starve to death. This is awful. I don't have that now. You know, I'm always, I'm always about two weeks backed up from the time somebody fills out their form and gets me the audio. Sometimes I'm quicker than that, but there's always a cue now. So I'm fortunate for that too, but um, yeah, I'm really, I'm really busy. So there's not the insecurity of, am I going to be okay next month? So yeah, relatively slow. And the, and the amount of these things that that I do a week, and I have one person that works for me, Lucas Peterson, and he's been with me from the beginning, even in the recording days. He was my assistant engineer there, but he was with me as I was learning, and he learned along too. And he's a great cutter now. So it's between the two of us, and most of the time it takes the two of us just to keep up. And if I get super busy, I tell my clients on the front end, man, I'm really backed up. So I think I can get this in two weeks. But if I can't, I'll call you next week and go, man, it's going to be three. So if speed is your thing and you really need to get this done, I'm letting you know if you need to go to somebody else. But most of the time people are like, just get it when you can, man. People seem to be educated enough to know now that you can't turn in your masters and then expect it you're not going to have a record for next month's record release party that's just nearly impossible to do that sounds like a rookie mistake right there right i always tell people don't even schedule your vinyl listening party or your release party till you at least have approved the test pressings and even then probably shouldn't schedule it till you have the records in your hand just because it's so volatile anything could happen yeah. That's a common cause for freak out. Like, well, I've already got my, my listening party or it's coming out this day. So a lot of people, instead of worrying about it and freaking out, they'll have, you kind of get two bites at the apple. You can schedule your regular digital release. If you're making CDs or you're streaming or whatever, what have you, whatever you're doing, that can be one release day. And then if your vinyl didn't come in on time, you can have another one for your vinyl release. So I think yeah, know, people can sometimes that, that, works out even better. You get two different parties. When it comes to the technology that's used in these lathes, like so with this cutter head, it's going to get repaired, but does anybody make new cutter heads like now? They're starting to a little bit, but when you figure the market, there's 
around 100 of us in the world that do this, professionally at least. There's only 100 of us that are that are rolling right now. So how much room is there for more? Probably room for a few more always, but not necessarily people are going to jump in and say, I'm going to buy a lathe and be cutting records in two months. So I don't know what kind of market there is for making new lathes. There's a couple people doing it and there's a couple people trying to do it, but nothing like Neumann's going to say, we're going to start making new Neumann VMS 70s or VMS 80 lathes. I don't think that would ever happen. Yeah. Or Scully as well. You know, again, that's part of the charm. This is 1950s, 60s, 70s technology. And even the computer built into the Neumann lathes is 1970s computer. Can you imagine? <laughs> you know, it's pretty crazy. And they have improved on some of that. So components like that, the pitch computer and stuff, there's new versions of those kind of things, which are arguably better or, say, quieter in the room than those things would be. And then there's components, you know, like there's some great high-frequency limiters that might outperform some of the old Neumann high-frequency limiters or elliptical EQs and things like that that we use specifically for vinyl where they're improving on those kind of things. But there is one company making diamond cutting styling now, and they don't even sell them. You have to rent them. Well, let me back up a few steps. A Neumann Sapphire Styly that I used for cutting, I need to have it changed out about every 20 hours of use, rule of thumb. I think a lot of cutters are, I don't know, may not go strictly by that rule. You kind of can tell by looking through the microscope if you think you need to start, if your lines aren't quite as crisp and things like that on the groove walls, that's a pretty good indicator. Like, probably need to go ahead and change your your cutting styly. But you know, there's another expense, a cutting styly, 150 bucks a piece. So you get 20 hours of use out of them, roughly, maybe more, maybe less. But a diamond will last for six months. And so if you get it on there and get it right, my fear would be though, if you have an accident and you drop chip or the, we call it a bird's nest. If you turn your head just for a second and it doesn't suck up in the tube, it starts gathering on the needle. Well, it can get on, if that gets on the wires and burns onto those heart wires, you have to send them back to Europe to be cleaned or sharpened every six to nine months or whatever. I would just be worried about something like that. You do have to make some major, not major, but some pretty fairly big adjustments to be able to use a diamond styly between a sapphire. So it's not like, oh, I got to take the diamond off and go back to a styly. You have to adjust things in the suspension box and the way the suction picks up the chip. There's a lot of, it's not just plug and play. And they rent them to you for 300 euros a month or something like that. That's what I heard last. So I looked into it, but I decided to stay. Again, people seem to love the sound of what old records sound like, and that's what we're recreating. So I'm sticking with the Sapphire for now. Did it take you a while to come up with the financial formula to make it work? I mean, let's just in a comparison, you know, a restaurant that serves a club sandwich has to factor in all the cost of the ingredients and the labor and the rent and the utilities and all the expenses to arrive at the price of the club sandwich. Did it take you a while to come up with the number that made it work for you? I pretty much made it up as I went along. I started charging 
when I was first cutting, I was still over at Arden. And so I just charged whatever Larry Nix charged, even though, you know, he had 40 years of experience and I had two weeks or whatever, but, <laughs> but he just didn't want there to be a difference. He didn't want me to be cheaper because I didn't want to undercut him or something like, oh, you can get this guy, same lathe. He's $50 a side cheaper. So we decided early on, I would just going to stick with what he charged. And I went with that price for years and only three or four years I raised my price. But yeah, it wasn't a business plan per se of, okay, I've decided now I'm going to buy a lathe. My circumstances were different than that. And it ended kind of abruptly at Arden. So I was in the position like I either got to find a lathe, which there weren't any. I found one by miracle fairly fast, agreed on a price. I went to the bank and everything was cool. I have good credit and all the things necessarily dotted the I's, crossed the T's and got the amount of the loan that I was going to need to buy the lathe. And the guy I was buying it from, when he agreed to sell it to me, I said, can you give me 10 days, two weeks to come up with the money? And he said, 10 days will be fine. So I had 10 days. So everything was fine. I went right to the bank. They approved everything was cool. And it was literally on day eight. I was on my way out the door. I'll never forget it. Got a phone call. And it was the bank said, Mr. Powell, we are so sorry. The underwriters aren't going to approve this loan. Your credit's fine. Everything's cool. But this is an old machine. They don't really understand what it does. What would happen if it breaks? How would they get rid of it if something happened to you? So they're not going to approve the loan. I'm so sorry. And we will give you a $5,000 business line of credit. And I said, okay, I'll take that. And then it was just credit cards, borrowing against my house, friends, family, two days. And with 10 minutes left of the deadline, like 10 till five the day on day 10, I wired him the money and he called me, said, okay, man, it's yours. A deal's a deal. I got to tell you, I had kind of changed my mind you know, I really don't want to sell it now, but a deal's a deal. But if you don't really, really want it, I'll send you your money back right now. And I go, no, man, you don't know what I've just been through. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I'm going to come get it. So I said, okay. And then to this day, he's a friend of mine, but to this day, whenever I see him, he's like, you caught me in a weak moment, man. I wish, I really wished I wouldn't have sold that. I'm glad you're making a living off of it, but I shouldn't have sold that lathe. I don't, you know. So he still kvetches about it, but so my, mine was kind of haphazard. I had to make it up as I go along. Like with him, when we even arrived at the price of what he wanted me to pay for it, I just said, no problem. Well, I didn't have that kind of dough laying around. So, you know, I knew I was going to have to borrow money to get it. So I basically just told him I had the money when I didn't, but I, but I made it and came up with it and Business was so good, I, I had everything. It paid for itself in two years. Damn, So that's great. Yeah, so it had a happy ending, but that was a hectic two days. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. For the audience, if they want to find you and hire you, what website is best for them to find you at? Okay, well, I promise it's coming. I've gone all this time with no website, if you can believe oh, that. Oh, okay. It's all been word of mouth. But that's going to change. I've actually started on one just to make it easier for people who just want to maybe comparing prices or what have you or look at some of my credits or all this stuff entails. So I will have one probably within a month. But 
my main email for reaching out to me, if you want me to cut your record, is jeff at takeoutvinyl.com. There you go. And Takeout Vinyl is the name of my company, so you can Google that too, and there's all kinds of stuff. You can track me down or listen to me talk about it or credits and stories and reviews, things like that. It's all there, but I'd, I'm trying to compile it basically in a one-stop shop where somebody could look and check me out if they want to and they're considering. But it's in some weird way, I've always kind of taken pride that I never did have to get a website and my work is spoke for itself. It's kind of like the old days, man. They look at the back of the record. They like it. Who did this? And, oh, there's his name again. Okay. Oh, yeah. Are you credited as, as the, the cutter? On, on records? That's a good question. Sometimes I'm M, sometimes I'm not, but on every record I cut, if you look in the runout groove, you'll see a little tiny J Powell. I scribe that in the runout groove. And I started doing that just because Larry Nix, who taught me again, he put an L Nix. Most cutters have a little symbol or scribe. Some aren't so overt that have their name like that. I just did it because that's what I saw Larry do. So I just put a little J Powell on everything. So if somebody wants to argue and say, I didn't do it. It's stamped on every record that I've cut. Now, when they do ask and say, how would you like your credit to read? I said, well, if you have room, I prefer Vinyl Mastering by Jeff Powell at Takeout Vinyl, if you've got room to put all that. That's come to a point because, well, I don't want to sound like a whiny baby, but a couple of years ago, I cut the Billie Eilish record that won Record of the Year and won the Grammy for Record of the Year. And there's six categories, I think, that a mastering engineer, quote unquote, would get a Grammy statue and you become a Grammy winner if you mastered the record on one of these six categories. So that one won. And then the same year, I cut the uh, Mr. Rogers record that won for Best Historical, not even beat out Prince, which was crazy to me. But that one too, and the, and the mastering engineer gets a statue for that. So I thought I won two Grammys that year, but when I sent in my paperwork, they just laughed at me and just said, no, you're just the record cutter. Then we talked about credits. One of them said lacquers cut by Jeff Powell or whatever. I still don't understand. I've looked at the rules, but I'm not going to stand on the steps and stomp up and down and go, where's my Grammys? But I have even written a proposal to the trustees of the Recording Academy, not just for me, but on behalf of my colleagues too, that it kind of baffles me that if a mastering engineer would get a Grammy award for their work on some of these big records that have these huge accolades, I just don't think they have the opinion that a vinyl record cutter is a specialty of a job as it really is. In theory, you can master Beyonce's record on your headphones on a laptop. You can't cut a vinyl record on a laptop. You have to, the huge investment in equipment and time and years of making mistakes and trying different things to get to be asked to work on projects of that caliber. So that's why, you know, again, I don't throw a fit if they don't. A lot of times people don't put anything. Yeah. But uh, if I'm asked, that's the thing. Vinyl Mastering by Jeff Powell at Takeout Vinyl. Well, I hope, I hope that that changes for you and your colleagues because it's an important and very specialized task that you all take on. One that I would not get into personally, because it's just more than I can handle, I think, <laughs> at this time. One question I forgot to ask you is that the audio that is sent to the lathe, does that, that comes off of a computer, I, I take it nowadays. Most of it does, but I do have a preview deck, a tape machine. 
I do a lot of reissues for Concord Stacks, amongst others too. Anybody really that, that wants it off tape. I've kept mine limited to quarter inch tapes just because I do have half inch head stacks and things like that, but you have to change out all the rollers and the head stacks and it's it's quite an ordeal. So most of these old old projects come in on quarter inch anyway. But yeah, several years ago, probably five or six years ago, they approached me. I was doing a fair amount of cutting for Concord and Craft anyway. And they asked me like, do you cut off tape? And I'm like, well, I don't really get enough requests for that. So no, I don't have a preview deck. It takes a special tape deck with two identical sets of playback electronics. It's not a record machine. And they're, they're pretty rare and hard to find too. Not so much anymore because people are starting to mod them back. But they said, well, we wanted to do this whole Made in Memphis thing where we'd get you to cut the lacquers for some of these reissues that we're going to do and in this Made in Memphis series, and we're going to press the records at Memphis Record Pressing Plant. And we'd like to keep it local. And I said, well, how many titles are we talking here? And when they told me, I'm like, I will be buying me a preview deck. So I got me a <laughs> Studer A80 and I had it minted out. And I think the first record I did off tape was Booker T and the MG's Melting Pot. And even me being the skeptic that I am, is like, how much difference does it really make coming off the master tapes? And man, it just... It just knocked me back in my chair. It, it sounds so good. Not the digital doesn't sound great, Tim. We can make that sound great too. But I'd say it's probably at a ratio of 85% of my stuff that comes in is digital. Yeah. And I should say pre-mastered for vinyl too. I'd like to mention that because when I get a project, I ask them for the send me pre-mastered for vinyl files. And what that entails, I mean, almost every mastering engineer these days will we'll do both. Almost everybody's making vinyl records off their new releases, big or small. So they'll make a regular set for all your, like you said, all your digital and your streaming and if, even if you're doing CDs. And then they'll make another set of masters that are ideally sonically the same but they may relax the the heavy limiting they may turn it down a little bit because there's no way i can even come close to get the levels on the disc that digital music is sold at these days so just basically relaxing that a little bit they if there's a lot of excess high frequency information whether it be crazy symbols or hi-hats or s's or t's or f's or plosives any of those kind of things will have a good or better chance of distorting. And I have tools that I can tamp those down, but it works best. The guys that are best send me stuff and they've kind of taken a swipe at it, just tamped it down a little bit. And then they leave me room to do what I do to it, to get it the rest of the way. And that seems to be a formula that really works well. And people ask me like, why don't you do the pre-mastering yourself? And I can, and I have, but a lot of my work seems to come from mastering engineers who their clients have said, who do I use for digital? They've tried me and they like the results. And so they start telling all their clients, basically give Jeff a call and he'll take care of you. They're not limited to that, but if, once they talk to me and we talk a little bit and get it figured out, then that's where I get a lot of my repeat business. So I don't want to take that business away from them by doing it all myself, basically. When we're talking sibilance frequency-wise, are we talking like in the 2 to 5K range or, or are we talking in like 10 to 15 or like... It's mostly 7 on up. 
Okay. Maybe down around six sometimes. It depends whether it's a whistly female singer or a whispery male singer. You know, just everybody's a little bit different. So you, it's just one of those things you can identify and either attack certain instances where it may just happen once on the side. So then that, in that sense, you know, I would make a different track and it affect that one little part instead of having to put it across the whole mix for the whole side of the record. I try to be a minimalist and not, not sacrifice all the, that edgy top end just because there's one little loud ass or a really loud hi-hat thing or something yeah. of that nature. Doesn't it also throw your cutting ability off when there's too much phasey low-end information on the left and the right, like Tom's? Oh, yeah. Hand hard left and right. That's a problem. That's one of the big problems. So what I describe to people about that, we have a device called an elliptical EQ. And if anybody's out there listening that has a design for a analog outboard elliptical EQ, I'm always looking for the magic one. I haven't found the magic one. There's different ones I've tried to different results. But in the digital world, some of the plugins, you can really dial in there. But for those that don't know, in essence, an elliptical EQ, basically you select the frequency and it'll bring everything below that frequency toward the middle. So a lot of these stacks reissues, you know, they're the drums and bass are hard pants. So that's a good example. Well, that throws the phase of the low end off a lot. It sounds really cool. But then you listen to, I go get the original pressings and it doesn't sound anything like the master tapes that I'm listening to it off of because they pulled all, all some you think that was just a lazy move. You just set it at 300 cycles and that completely changes the complexion of the sound. So I try again to be a minimalist. So I may drop either the frequency level to 50 or something like that. I just use my ears to figure it out and where, what's the point where I start losing, it's starting to pull too much of that to the middle. And it starts changing the complexion and the coolness of the stereo vibe of the sound. But if you look under the microscope, what happens in the groove, it starts to make, when you have out-of-phase low-end information, it starts to make what looks like kind of an hourglass groove. So it gets really fat, and then it can get really thin. All the while, while it's going over hills and dales, and if it gets to the point where it's really out-of-phase and you've got a really thin groove and that's going up a hill the needle can fly out of the groove and cause a skip. And so you can't let that happen because there's no way, if it gets out into the world like that, you're going to have returns like crazy. So you got to be, you got to be careful about that. But that's definitely something, sometimes you want to say, go back to the mix and do this. You know, I loved hard panning stuff when I was engineering and mixing, but in the nineties, in the aughts, there really wasn't much concern at all for if it ended up on the vinyl format. So you could kind of just do whatever you wanted. And people ask that to you a lot. They're like, why do my records from the 70s sound louder than the ones that everybody's cutting now? And if you think about it, records just weren't near as dense. There weren't 150 tracks of something that was being combined down to two, like, like we do a lot now. That's one thing. But their end goal was to engineer for the medium of vinyl. So they checked their mixes in mono a lot. They, they DS the vocals when they were mixing much more than they do now. All those kind of things were considered going in. So it allowed the cutting engineer, you still can only make it so hot before it distorts. A lot of those old records distort like crazy. You just never noticed it when you were, when I, you know, when I certainly didn't when I was a kid growing up. 
that's a weird thing about doing vinyl reissues as well. You start listening with engineer ears, as I call them. Like, I always loved this record, but wow, this is not to today's standards. This doesn't sound all that great technically, <laughs> yeah. but it's great, you know? So yeah. all those things factor in. There's a plugin that I use from Brainworks called the, I think it's called the V3. And it can be an MSEQ. You can also just make it a stereo EQ, but it has the elliptical feature you're talking about where you choose a frequency and say, you know, everything below 60 hertz bring to the center. That's my favorite plugin. The one you just named. Is yeah. It, as far as plug-in world, that's what I use. It's a little button called Monomaker. And so yeah. you, you have good metering and you can see the correlation meter and the phase meter and you can kind of see, okay, where does it start looking right on the meter? Now, what's that sound like? I'm like, can I get away with backing that down a little bit? You know, again, trying to be the minimalist. That's a great one, man. It's very transparent. I love that. Yeah, and, and and you can get it. Plugin Alliance has it. Universal Audio has a, a deal with Brainworks for it too. So whatever platform you're on there. I use that a lot when I'm dealing with drum overheads where depending on how the overheads were placed, the kick seems to be heavier on one side or the other. And I'll use that to kind of bring the kick back to the center mm -hmm. a little bit more. I know we're totally talking some tech talk, which in all the years of, of working class audio, I never get like this deep into it. But I think this has been super great because vinyl is such a special thing to a lot of people. And I think that there's just a lot of lack of knowledge, which is why I wanted to go into this with you today. And I really appreciate you taking the time to do it because I think a lot of people will get a lot out of this. Well, thanks. It's I love talking about it. And that, again, that's one of the things I take time with my clients to, to get on the phone with them because I think they're intimidated when they start because they don't know. And then I like to think if you do one record with me, whether you come back and have me do your next one or not, you're going to have a greater knowledge of what went into making it. If it sounds great, hopefully, what did you do to make it sound great? Without every detail, of course, but... They'll just have a certain comfort with it and say, okay, here's what I need to do on my end before I ever start talking to him. I know to fill out his form, I get all the, it flows to a spreadsheet. So I have everything I need in one place. I don't have to hunt through 50 million emails and you can make the process go fairly smooth. And then the other big thing, I think this is in any business, but in the vinyl world, let's face it, it's, it's a volatile thing and a lot can go wrong. And so how do you handle things when they go wrong? And I've seen some of my colleagues be very gracious about it. I've seen some that are like, sure, I'll do a recut, but you're paying me full price again. And sometimes that is the case. But my attitude, when a problem arises, let's fix it. Let's fix it fast. Let's try to figure out what it was so I don't just recreate the problem again if it was, some, if it was something on my end. Or it can be as simple as, man, we scratched the lacquer when we were taking it out of the box. I'm so sorry. Can you do another recut and FedEx it tomorrow? Stop what you're doing and I'll do that too. And then we'll talk about the dough later. Is that something you think I should have to pay for since they scratched it? Or is it somebody I do so much business with that all comes out in the wash? It all, all just depends. But I've never been a money first person, maybe to my detriment, but I want to get them the best sounding record as possible and if there's a problem, they don't need to freak out. We'll deal with it. We'll deal with it quickly, and we'll, we'll handle it. 
and you'll still yeah. be okay. And just so the audience knows, anytime any client asks me, where do I get this done? I always, without fail, send them to Jeff. Every time. Thank you so much. And I do appreciate that, man. You've been a, you've been a real champ about that. And thank you. Yeah. Well, it's, it doesn't happen all that often, but when it does, it's just like, Jeff Powell, go to Jeff Powell. Because I know <laughs> it'll get done right. And that's really what it's about is making sure that people are taken care of and the product is, is quality. So thank um, you very much. Well, Matt. Be before we go, is there anything that we didn't talk about that you wanted to touch on that maybe I forgot about? Man, I think we hit it a pretty good swath other than the fact that I feel so happy and thankful that I get to come in and do a job every day that I just absolutely love doing this. Even though I'm sitting here talking to you a day, three hours after I've learned that my cutter head is blown up and that could knock me out of business for a month. And I had to call all clients and explain, are you going to wait for me? Do I send you somewhere else? You know, it's going to cost me a lot of money and that's disheartening, but I'm still a really happy guy. And I'm thankful that I get to do something so much fun that I love so much. And man, when you get the record back or somebody sends me a copy of their final thing, it's, you know, they'll send me thank you notes, whatever. That's what we're doing it for, man. We've put something into the world that's going to be here long after I'm gone. And the whole fact that it's an old technology that was almost dead and we it's come back to life just because of the love of music and people care about what their music sounds like that they own and can touch and save and trade and all those other things. I'm just happy to be swimming in the middle of all that man so i'm thankful to everybody for that well that's awesome and i'm and i'm glad that you're in a good spot with this it's always refreshing to hear that so for the audience just once again if you need to reach out to jeff to get your vinyl needs taken care of or your lacquer cutting needs taken care of jeff at takeoutvinyl.com link will be in the show notes of course so check there as a reminder. But Jeff, thank you so much. Great to talk to you. I know it's been way too long and I look forward to when we can uh, see each other again. I haven't seen you in a long time in person. I know, man. And again, thanks for having me and all you do, man. Thanks for all you do. And this is just a great working class audio is a very cool thing. So thanks for all you do, man. Thank you. All right. Will you take care? All right. Take care. Have a great day. You too. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for, giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LP UNF. Jeff Powell here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks so much for being here with me today. Remember, my new ask now used to be, you know, go and give a five-star review of the show, but instead, go tell a friend. Go tell somebody in the audio world, no matter what discipline of audio they're in, tell them about the show, encourage them to tune in and check it out. We want to grow the Working Class Audio community even bigger. 
and that would be greatly appreciated. And if you want to leave a five-star review, you can do that too. That's totally cool. That's all for me today, though. Want to thank the crew. That includes Anne-Marie Plow in the editing, Cliff Truesdell in the Working Class Audio theme song, and the great Chuck Smith and his voice there at the top of the show. Connect with me on LinkedIn. Always feel free to send me an email, matt at workingclassaudio.com. Until next time, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like, and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.